Uh, well, if you didn't know, uh, my name is Mike, and uh, if you didn't know this, I studied music in college, and I really don't like to brag, but I was there for five years, uh, so you can just add that on to my music degree an extra year. Uh, but I love music, I love studying music, and I started as a music educator. Uh, and I studied education, and I uh, found out that I was terrible at teaching classes, so like large groups of kids, I just couldn't do it. But what I loved is one-on-one -on -one lessons. I loved being with a kid, hearing them play, some, some adults too, I had some adult uh, students, um, and I just loved being with them. And my experience with musicians, so I've been playing music for a while, is, are there any other music majors, by the way? I see that hand. Mike is a liar. He's not a music major. Uh, okay, I'm with you in the back. Um, but something that I learned about musicians is that musicians were good at one of three things often. Uh, firstly was kind of like the discipline of practicing music, uh, the rhythm that you build into your life. So with music, uh, you couldn't cram overnight uh, to get good at a song. It just didn't work because you needed the muscle memory, you needed the practice, you needed the continual rhythm. And I tell all my students, I would rather you practice five minutes a day than 35 minutes once a week because your body needs that muscle memory. So there are some uh, musicians who are better at practicing music. Then there are some musicians uh, who really liked music theory. They loved understanding music, why things sounded the way they did and what it made you feel. Um, and I don't wanna like kill the mysticism uh, that's happening when we play music, but uh, we rearrange songs so that they support uh, the message. So it's kind of the music theory of understanding the story underneath the story. Um, I'm like holding myself back because I love talking about music theory. I'm the music theory person. I, I'm terrible at practice. Um, and then lastly is kind of uh, some musicians really good at improvisation. They're good at listening to other musicians, or if you've heard of like jamming, which is more than just a sugary, fruity thing you put on your bread. Oh boy. Um, so some musicians were just really good at listening to each other and vibing off of each other and kind of like playing that way. And often what was happening was I would meet with a musician and they would be good at one of those three things. Um, and uh, often the, there weren't like well-rounded musicians that I interacted with. So my plan and my vision with all my music students was to give them this well-rounded approach to music. Where we'd talk about the practice and the drills. We'd talk about music theory. Why is this happening? Why does it make you feel this way? And then we'd uh, improvise a lot and we'd just play music together. And so all of my music students have this well-rounded, well-balanced approach to what does it mean to be a musician. When we think about the life of faith, I think it's really similar. I think a lot of us, myself included, have uh, experienced uh, in engaging in the life of faith that we're good at one of these three things, or we really value one of these three things. Think about music practice. It's the practice, the discipline of living faithful life. We think about music theory, kind of the understanding of the gospel story, the understanding of the biblical narrative. And then we think about improvisation, like playing with others, engaging, listening, and going back and forth. And often when uh, I think about my life, there's been seasons where one has been highlighted over another. But the bottom line is, is to be a full person of faith, of moving forward and growing in maturity, we need all three of these. We need the practice, the regular rhythm of disciplines in our lives. 
We need to understand the gospel story and the biblical narrative. We also need to be able to engage with each other thoughtfully and caringly. So this morning, I'm going to talk specifically about uh, discipleship, which may sound like a weird word to some of you. To others of you, it may be like, yeah, discipleship. I've heard that word a million times. Uh, but discipleship uh, is, is not inherently a Christian word. In, in the Bible, disciple is used to define Christians more than the word Christian. So I hope you understand the importance of what being a disciple is. So in disciples, like I said, wasn't inherently Christian. Even Socrates, he had disciples. Uh, so Jesus wasn't the only person who had disciples. But, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, discipleship, uh, to be a disciple meant to be like a student or a learner uh, of a specific teacher. Um, and, uh, but I had lots of teachers in college, and I wouldn't say I was discipled by them. Uh, so a discipleship actually has a more model of life living, has a more being with somebody and learning from them, not just gaining information. So when we think about discipleship, it might have already been on the board. Nice. Uh, discipleship is walking with others who are walking with Christ. Walking with others as we are walking with Christ. So as a Christ follower, we are all disciples. We understand that identity. So discipleship is the act of intentionally helping each other walk with Jesus. Helping each other understand our identity as disciples. Helping each other live in the reality that we are disciples of Jesus. And so that's what I wanted to talk about this morning of what really does discipleship look like? We're going to talk big picture for a little bit, and then we'll talk a little bit practicality. Uh, but that's really where we're going. It's what does discipleship look like? And we're going to look at these, those three things that I mentioned. It's faithful living. It's understanding the gospel story. And lastly, it's being in relationship with each other. And this is what discipleship can look like. And we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I invite you to turn to your Bibles there, or you can use your smartphone. Or if you just like to listen, that's also appropriate. Um, but we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And this is a really awesome passage for discipleship because Paul wrote letters, letters to Timothy. He didn't write letters. He wrote letters to Timothy. And he was discipling Timothy. And this specific passage, he's telling Timothy how to disciple others. So this is like the inception Bible verse of discipleship. It's like, discipleship inside of discipleship. So this is a really robust, short seven verses that give us so much insight into what discipleship is. So I'm going to read from this. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to do verses 1 through 7. It says, You then, my child, be, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of his crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is the word of God for the people of God. So like I said, we're going to break this down into three components. What does it look like everyday discipleship? What does it look like for us as disciples to be engaged in making disciples? 
Well, firstly, we see uh, that the first thing about discipleship is faithful living. It's faithful living. Paul talks about here being a good soldier, which to some of us, it might be like, like I don't really like talking about Christianity in militant terms, uh, but this is just an illustration. Um, and um, I did grow up as a military brat, uh, so I have experienced... Anybody else in the military? One. Man, I thought there'd be a lot more musicians and military folk. I'm embarrassed. Um, but I lived on a military base, and uh, what Paul is saying here, he says uh, specifically, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. What we see here is that a soldier has a clear focus. A soldier has a clear aim. A soldier has single-minded obedience, which doesn't mean that they're simple. It means that they have a single focus that everything is going towards. Now, like I said, I lived on a lot of military bases, and so most of you will not understand this, but there's some things that you do on military bases that is a little bit weird. Uh, One of them uh, was at 5 o'clock every single day, the national anthem would play. And you would find the closest flag, and you would put your hand on your heart. If you're in uniform, you had to salute the flag. It doesn't matter what you were doing. Like, cars stopped. People got out of cars. Uh, softball games ended. No, I guess they paused. They didn't end. They're like, that's it. National Anthem. It's over. Uh, that it was their responsibility for everyone who lived on the base to do this. And that was that kind of single-minded obedience that it doesn't matter what they did when they heard this song. They stopped what they're doing. This is the kind of single-minded obedience that Paul is calling us to pursue, to live in, this kind of uh, this priority setting. And to be honest, it's hard for me to do priorities. I'm following tons of people on Twitter about productivity and how to like, make an agenda and things like that, and it's going okay. It's, it's not great. Uh, but we live in this age of distraction. We live where there's so much available to us, where we are having so many different pursuits that we can pursue, lots of different good things that are good for us. Uh, this, uh, this author who wrote this book, his name is Matthew Crawford. The book is called The World Beyond Your Head, Becoming an Individual in an Age of Distraction. He says, ever since the Enlightenment, Western societies have been obsessed with autonomy. And in the past few hundred years, we have put autonomy at the center of our lives, economically, politically, and technologically. Often, we think about what it means to be happy because we think of freedom from our circumstances. Unfortunately, we've taken things way too far. We're now addicted to liberation. We regard any situation, a movie, a conversation, a one-block walk down a city street as a kind of prison. Distraction is a way of asserting control. It's autonomy run amok. Technologies of escape, like the smartphone, tap into our habits of cessation. Now, this, he's specifically talking about smartphones, about uh, kind of escapism, escaping reality, but isn't that true for all parts of our lives? Isn't that true that when we are faithful and living, we feel this tension to now step out of that to say, oh, this doesn't control me. I can do whatever I want. Something that's really funny, uh, and I hope this, no, it's funny, um, is, uh, you know, we, my family, we're trying to be really di- diligent with money, and after a little while, I just feel tired. I feel tired of being really diligent with money, and so what you think is I would just be like, okay, let's not spend anything. Wrong. When I'm feeling tired of saving money, I want to spend that money. I want to find the least important thing in anybody's life and buy it immediately, 
My wife and I have had fights where she's like, you're not in your right mind. I'm like, that's the perfect case for my shoes. I need this now. Living in a life of discipline and practice and endurance, there's going to be things vying for our affection, things vying for our distraction, pulling us out. Often our lives have divided focus. One of my favorite artists, Propaganda, he says, multitasking is a myth. You ain't doing anything good, just everything awful. Yeah, he was in here recently. Not here. Central Ohio. (laughs) The idea that we can do so many things is just not true. The idea that we can pursue this and this and this, it's not reality. We're our human beings with human limitations. Like I said, a lot of these things are good things. We talk about family, work, friends, health. These are really important things. What Paul is calling us to do in this discipleship relationship as disciples of Christ is have a single-minded focus. Have a single-minded focus of what does it look like to be a disciple of Christ. Paul also says you need to identify people who are faithful. I don't want you to be scared off by this. Because often when we can see this in the Bible, we think they're saying, find somebody who's faultless. Find somebody who's doing it perfect. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, find somebody who's doing their best. Find somebody who is dependent, who is investing, who is depending on God. So there's this call in discipleship relationships to pursue faithful living. But it's not just enough to learn what a disciple does, but we need to ask the question, why? Why do we do this? Why is this important? It's the difference between behaving and beholding. Behaving and beholding. See, I can teach my kids, well, a parent, I could try to teach my kids to behave, but what's more important is I help them understand why it's better to act this way. I can say, don't say that word, but if I explain this word has negative connotations, don't say this then there's this chance of understanding. So discipleship isn't just faithful living, it's also gospel understanding. It's not just doing the things that help us stay on track, it's also understanding the story, understanding that this is actually good for us. Paul goes on to say in verse 5, he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, what he's saying here is you need to understand. You need to understand what gets you there and what doesn't get you there. You need to understand that you can't do a forward pass when you're doing a kick return. Yes. Sports, am I right? You need to understand how things work and how things operate to be able to do them well. I've mentioned my son a couple times, uh, but he, uh, he's just now becoming uh, able to talk and dream a little bit, and he wants to be a veterinarian. And I'm like, that does literally no good for me. Maybe consider being a car mechanic or something like that that would benefit me. But he said he wants to be a veterinarian, and what's funny about that is he doesn't really like pets. Like, they, like, startle him. They make him really uncomfortable. My wife and I have been talking to him. We're like, you, you understand what a vet does, right? You understand that, like, people aren't bringing their, like, snakes in. He's really like snakes at the zoo. That people are mostly bringing in their pet dogs and cats. And that's what you don't like. You understand that, right? So he doesn't quite understand the rules. To be a veterinarian, you need to enjoy dogs and cats. 
And the same is for us. We need to understand the rules of living. We need to understand the rules of God. We need to understand what he's invited us to. Now, rules, sometimes people think rules just mean don't do this. But rules really mean if you're in here, you're going to live best. This is going to be the best path for you. So what is the rules? What is the uh, gospel understanding of this message? Because it's not solely enough to imitate pietous living. And we've tried that. I've tried that. I've tried just to, on my own strength, just say, okay, this person looks really godly, so I'm going to imitate that really godly person. But there's no conviction. That only gets me so far. Anyone can imitate Christianity for a while without any real conviction, but that won't last. So being able to ask the question, why? Why do we do this? Why does the church gather? Why do I have to pray? Why do we read the Bible? Why do we give generously with our finances? Why do we give generously with our time? Being able to ask why, why, why? The pursuit of, uh, the pursuit of having the answers is knowing God. Understanding the gospel needs to first and foremost being knowing God. And I want you to hear the difference. It's not knowing about God. It's knowing God personally. It's the difference between information and experience. Jonathan Edwards, who's a, a Puritan uh, theologian, he wrote this in his book, Religious Affections. He says, I can show you, honey. You can marvel at its golden hue, the way, it reflect, <clears throat> the way light shows off from it, <laughs> its viscosity. I can tell you that it is sweet, and you can believe that it is sweet, but unless you have tasted it. You don't know that it's sweet. Believing honey is sweet doesn't mean you really know it is sweet. I could be lying to you. You only know honey is sweet when you have tasted it. This is our invitation to know God, not just to know about him, but to truly experience him, to truly learn about him Invite him into the everyday living. This is what beholding is. Beholding the glory of God. And we do this primarily through the word of God. Reading, inviting the word of God to shape our life, to shape our perspective. But gospel understanding isn't just about knowing God. It's also about knowing ourselves and being honest with who we are. I don't know about you, that's really hard for me to do. To have a gospel understanding, to admit who I am in my sinfulness, but also admit maybe some things that I wish that I was, that I'm not. I wish that I was able to read refracts, but I can't. I wish that I was more extroverted, but I'm not. Living inside of my own humanity and celebrating who God made me to be, enjoying that God made me this way, enjoying the gifts of who I am. This is extremely important for understanding the gospel. It's been something that the Western church has overlooked for a very, very long time. Thinking that all we need is information about God, but personal experience with God paired with understanding who we are is how we grow as disciples of Christ. Uh, Rich Plass and Jim Cofield. Uh, Jim is a counselor uh, who I meet with on the phone. Uh, he wrote this, wrote this great book called The Relational Soul, and he says this. He said, the way God designed us to see and own our interpretations of life 
and thus have a clear sense of our own identity is through the telling of our story in the presence of a loving and wise person. There's not this isolated uh, identity that we can form. We need each other. We need to be able to share these stories, which leads on to the next point. Disciple-making is not solely information transference, but it's modeled in loving care. Disciple-making is not solely information transforms, but modeled in loving care. Discipleship needs relational care and love for one one another and knowing each other. Paul, he says this in verse 6. He said, It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. You're thinking, okay. Uh, I didn't know that farmers had relationship uh, with crops or anything like that. But when you think about farming, there's a knowing, there's an understanding. When is the time to plant the seeds? When is the soil too hard? When does it need to be watered? When does it need to be sown and reaped? There's this relationship that takes time to learn and to be sensitive to. I've had a yard for three years now, and my grass is terrible. And I've tried everything. I've done weed and feed. That's everything. I have no other solutions. I'm learning. There's this process of what's in the shade, what's in the sun. Is it close to a tree? Did it take the weed and feed? These are the questions I'm asking myself. Caring for the earth, farming, it takes time, it takes knowing. And we see that Paul is extremely caring for uh, Timothy. He says, you then my child... Maybe some of you read this and you thought, oh, they're related. This is his dad. This is not his dad. My child is this loving term that Paul used. It's this sweet, gentle care. We need to have that for each other. And if we try to disciple without love, if we try to make disciples without love, we may help others look like Christians, but we'll lack what we need most And that is a heart filled with real affection and devotion. If we do not have affection for each other, we will never be able to make disciples. Real, true affection. There's also this invitation. Uh, Paul also says, share in the sufferings. Share in the sufferings. Man, that is very costly. I hate drama. I can't even watch Parenthood. I can't do it. I can't watch This Is Us, like, I'm just, I'm out. Like, I can't even engage in it fictionally. Uh, It is just exhausting. And it's hard for me to share in the suffering with people. But what it is, is I'm dependent on my affection for them. Because I truly love them. Because I see God in them. Because I truly love Christ, I'm able to love you. And I'm able to be loved. I'm able to allow other people to share my burdens. And lastly, it's not just sharing the burdens. What's hard is sharing ourselves. A lot of us can think that discipleship is like a mentorship, that I can bring somebody along who's maybe, you know, 15 years younger than me, and I can kind of paint this illusion of myself like I figured it out, that I have all the answers, that I made no mistakes. But true disciple-making means sharing not only our successes, but also our failures and our shortcomings. I mean, it shows pretty quickly, uh, at least for me, people will see 
our shortcomings, when we have true affection, true relational care. But that's hard to be so vulnerable with somebody, so vulnerable with myself about who I am. So we see that this discipleship relationship, this disciple-making, being a disciple is an identity, but this call to make disciples is true for all of us. It involves faithful living. It involves understanding the gospel story, and it involves caring for each other deeply and truly. So this is kind of like a a big picture. It, it, It is practical. There's some important components, but I do want to talk some practical steps some discipleship practice. And these are some things that have worked for me. Uh, Discipleship works different ways for a lot of different people. Um, But these are some things that I think will hold true for everyone. Uh, Firstly, uh, be intentional. It's, uh, I know it sounds weird, but it's a little bit like a dating relationship. That if you don't know what's happening, then either it's going to go in the wrong direction or it's just going to kind of disappear. So do something on purpose. Invite somebody into something with you, invite them to walk with you, and invite yourself to walk with them. I also think for me, this is a big one, being intentional with time, and some of the guys that I meet with uh, for discipleship, we laugh about this because, like, I have to have a start date and an end date. I'm like, okay, we'll read this book, and then we're going to reassess if we want to keep meeting together. Or we'll meet for six months, and then we're going to reassess. What can happen often is that lives just get busy and it doesn't continue in the same fashion that it was continuing. And then somebody will inevitably be hurt. You know, we used to hang out like three nights a week for discipleship and now it's just like once a month and I don't know why and I'm really hurt. So kind of opening it up to say, hey, for this season, this is what I'm hoping this will look like. Uh, That doesn't mean that lifelong friendships, lifelong discipleship can't happen. In fact, there's a couple of guys that I meet with that we kind of did that, and we're like, okay, like, let's break up. And after, like, a year, we're all like, oh, we're so lonely. Like, I miss you. Let's go get breakfast. So, like, there are seasons like that where we kind of all came back together because we had so much deep affections for each other, and we wanted to continue. So, firstly, be intentional. Secondly, accept your limitations. I've talked about this a little bit already. But you cannot fix anybody. It is not your burden to bear. Accepting our limitations. We can love, we can walk with people, we can point them, we can share in the suffering, but we can't save anybody. We need to engage in faithful living, relational care, yes, but if you bring that home with you every day, then you're going to feel tired and exhausted. But also accept your limitations in knowing that you aren't perfect. A lot of us aren't in discipleship relationships because we're like, I don't have it figured out. We don't. Nobody has it figured out. Nobody knows it perfectly. Nobody is doing everything 100% right. Accepting that we are human, and that's what we're inviting people into. And that leads into the last point, no that Christ is the good shepherd. Know that Christ is the ultimate discipler. These people that we meet with for disciples, they're not my, my disciples. They don't belong to me. They belong to Christ. And I belong to Christ with them. And that brings us down to a level together where there's equal need for each other. 
It's not just a, I figured it out, I'm going to teach it to you, and then I don't need you for anything. There's this understanding that we are disciples, firstly, of Christ, the Good Shepherd. And I'm going to say this in conclusion. The aim of discipleship, what is the aim of discipleship? It's not just to achieve goals. The aim of discipleship is not just to grow a bigger church. Those are good things, but the aim of discipleship is to join the song of Jesus. When he came to this earth, he came singing the song of salvation. He sang over us, but it wasn't just a song that said, listen. It was a song that said, join. Join and sing this song. A lot of us, when we're thinking about discipleship and making disciples, we want to make our own bands, right? We want uh, to get famous and kind of have like our little group and like, yeah, we're playing the music that I taught these guys and like we're doing everything that I want. This is not the goal of disciple making. The aim of discipleship is to join God's orchestra, to join the song of Jesus. When we think about legacy, we're not making a legacy here. We're joining a legacy Paul says in here, he's writing from prison to Timothy. He says, make disciples. He says, find faithful men and teach them so that they may teach others. This was a long time ago. This was on the other side of the world. See, the song of Jesus, it transcends ethnic cultures. It transcends time. It transcends location. This is the song that we're joining. When we think about legacy, we are joining something that we're already benefiting from. If you're in here today, it's because of the faithful men and women who've took discipleship seriously, who have made disciples and brought us here. In this song that we're singing, it's the most epic song. It is the most fun song. It is the most beautiful and emotional piece of music in all of history, in all of time, this message of salvation, and this message, it is too good not to share. It is too good not to share with each other, to keep reminding each other. Have you ever been to a good concert? And like weeks later, the person you went with, you're like, you remember that concert? And they're like, yes, I do. I remember. It was so good. This is too good to not share with each other over and over and over again. This message is too beautiful to be indifferent towards. This message, it is too powerful to not let it shape and define our lives. This discipleship, walking with each other, walking with Jesus, we're reminding each other of our identity, of who we are in Christ. And there's a lot of us here who are here because of the discipleship relationships we've we've received. But there's a lot of us here who have not had positive experiences with this. And I just want to take a few moments to invite you to pursue discipleship. To invite you uh, to come to me, and you can ask me. You can come to Pastor Jay, Jacob, Janelle, Elise, who is over there. Uh, or if you know somebody who's a city group leader, uh, they're passionate about discipleship. Share that with us. I haven't had a relationship like this. I haven't had a, a, a friend who cared about me deeply 
who walked with me through gospel understanding and faithful living and relational care. Please tell us, and we would love for this to be true for you too, knowing that first and foremost, we are disciples of Christ, that he came singing a song, and this is a song that we get to join in. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are living and active in our lives. We thank you that you didn't create this world and then abandon it, but you are invested in each and every one of us. We thank you that you invite us to live in the reality of who we are as disciples of Christ. We thank you that you invite us to understand the story, the story beneath the story, that we get to know you and taste your goodness, that you've made us each individually, and that you want us to know ourselves. We thank you that you made us need one another, that we need deep, caring friendships to bring us along in this journey of life. Heavenly Father, I pray that our church would continue to grow in healthy discipleship, that this would not just be something that we do, but something that we are. Lord, we give you all the glory and all the praise, admitting that you are good, you are sovereign, you are here and present. We pray all of this in the name of your Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.